The scripture reading is found in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and the reading will also be on the screen behind me. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's no secret what this parable is about. Fair enough? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is no doubt something that touches all of us in some way, in some form or fashion. We all have our own stories of forgiveness or lack thereof even potentially. Even as Vivian read the text in the parable we'll be walking through this morning, some of you, I I know where your minds go. They go to something, an incident that's ever present with you or it goes to a person You think one of the things that is um, particular and unique to Christianity, and I I think this would be true if you asked anyone, um, just on the street or maybe at your workplace, whether they're a believer or not believer, um, to give you one word or a couple words that sum up Christianity, I think you would hear love, I think you would hear grace, you'd hear mercy, and I think quickly on the heels of those, you would hear forgiveness, and particularly forgiveness meaning vertical forgiveness. That in, the, in Christianity, there is a God who forgives the people in and through faith in, the son, in his son, Jesus Christ. But I'm not sure how much we actually understand the idea of horizontal forgiveness. Our Bible speaks um, a lot about forgiveness, both vertical and horizontal. Jesus himself speaking a lot about forgiveness. And so let me tell you, I understand in a room this size, with this many people, the nuances to this discussion on forgiveness. The situations, 
the scenarios, the things that maybe you're even playing out, or, or maybe right now you're going, yeah, but Kyle, what about this? What about this offense that has happened to me? And there's no way that I can cover all of those or will even try. But I trust that the Holy Spirit is present here in and through the work of the scriptures this morning to meet you right where you are. Because the scriptures are not silent on forgiveness. In fact, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, right, the model prayer to us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, the one line in there about forgiveness, and the only line in the Lord's Prayer that actually is given commentary says this, and forgive us our debts, because that's biblical, what biblical forgiveness is, a release of debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Paul, in your New Testament, in his letters to churches, writes about forgiveness quite often in Colossians chapter 3. One sampling is this. You, church, put on then as God's holy, chosen, and holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, church. Ephesians 4. Paul again to the church at Ephesus. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And it's interesting where Paul roots the forgiveness in what? The forgiveness you have been given in and through Christ. Or how about that all-famous wedding chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Where it talks about, in some translations, love keeps no record of wrongs. How does love not keep a record of wrongs? Because true love forgives. So it's obvious from this parable and many other places, Old Testament to New Testament, forgiveness is one of the greatest truths of our Bible. But I want to submit to you this morning that forgiveness is one of the hardest things to actually practice even as a believer. Why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult for us to practice? Well, one reason could be, as I've already mentioned, all the nuances, all the questions, the different layers to forgiveness. How about in this situation or in that situation? How about in this offense or in that offense? And I want to caution us. I want to warn us this morning to not be like the lawyer in last week's parable, looking for a loophole, looking for a technicality to not offer forgiveness. You see, this parable is about setting the foundation in our hearts as believers, as disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, to be a people of supernatural forgiveness. This parable prepares us to be a generous community of forgiveness. It lays the foundation to say, listen, if you are going to walk with Jesus, if you are going to proclaim the forgiveness of God in and through Christ, you are going to be a person who has a heart inclined toward radical supernatural forgiveness. That's the foundation of this parable. However, there are limits as there are to any parable. And I love what Klein Snodgrass, he wrote a book called Stories with Intent on Parables. He says this about the limitations of parables, but it was about this one particularly. He says, readers or interpreters want parables to serve up whole theological structures on a platter. But parables are not theologies. Parables are theological, and we are greatly impoverished if their theology is neglected but they must be allowed to do what they intend and not be pushed beyond their purposes. So let me tell you this morning, as we stay within this parable, as we walk through this parable, there will be some of your questions about forgiveness that won't be answered in and through this parable. 
And I'm okay with that because we studied the whole counsel of God's word, amen? But let's not push this parable, let's not push the point past this parable this morning. So let's unpack it. If you have your Bible, open it. We're just gonna wade through it. And verse 21 is where we started. And um, I found it interesting as I studied this passage, some um, scholars would question whether or not this was actually a legitimate question by Peter. Meaning, was Peter asking this to like, uh, like in some illegitimate kind of way? And I would say to that, absolutely not. I believe Peter's question here in verse 21 is absolutely a legitimate question and a question that we often ask ourselves. Let's not forget where we are in the context of Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is giving a lecture on what it looks like to have relationships in the kingdom of God. He looks at humility because there's a question about greatness. He actually looks at the treatment of children in Matthew 18. How do I deal with someone in verse 15 who sins against me? Conflict with another brother and sister in Christ. And it's from that that Peter asks this question. If someone sins against me, if a brother sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? And notice, Peter gives an amount. Is it seven times, Lord? Now that's interesting, right? Well, it's interesting in two facets. One is the, just the number seven. This idea of, of this, the, how, how the, the actual time of Jubilee plays into this, which I'm not going to be able to get into. But the second one is, is actually interesting to me as well, that there were some rabbinical teachings going around, definitely after the time of Jesus, but that was probably known by Peter that says you need to forgive up to three times. You forgive up to three times, right? Your brother sins against you once, forgive, right? He repents, forgive, two, forget, repents, forgive, repent, forgive. But that fourth, that's enablement. And so Peter, I love this about Peter. I think he understands the heart of his teacher, the heart of Jesus. And he doubles the, the, maybe the, the, the generous rabbinical teaching. And he goes, seven times? Is it seven times that I'm to forgive? And Jesus goes, oh, Peter. Right? It's, that's, not in the, that's not in there. But he looks at Peter, and what does he say? He goes, no, actually not seven times. Seventy-seven. Seventy-seven times. In another place, it would be seven times seventy. What is Jesus saying? You need to do a really good job of keeping track. Right? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Wait a minute. What about that 78th time, Jesus? No, Jesus is going, listen. This is even Luke 17 and Matthew 18 and other places. Jesus is going, listen. If your brother or sister comes to you and repents, what do you do? Christian, you forgive. How, how many times? How many ever times? It is, a, it is a, a, a number that is meant to stop his audience and attracts Peter himself in their tracks to go, wait, we're supposed to be just continually forgiving? And Jesus goes, yes. Now let me tell you a story, and this is where he clicks into the parable. And the parable begins in verses 23 through 25 with a, an enormous debt displayed to a king by a servant. And, and I had this question, which there's no answer to this question, but I'm like, how does a servant rack up this amount of debt? Right? Like, what is this guy possibly doing? Um, but this debt is unfathomable. And more than it's just an unfathomable amount, it is an impossible amount to repay. So the, and you've heard that, you, most of you have heard this parable. You've heard it put in common dollars and, and all of these different things. 
But what struck me is the amount of time for a servant like this, a day labor to pay this, would have been about a, roughly 164,000 years for this day labor to pay back the king. And listen, that's what he wants to do. He's like, I'll pay it back. Have, have, have patience with me. But it's impossible. The original audience to Jesus would have heard it as that. They would have understood that the weight and the time required to pay back this debt was impossible. But what is even more incredible than the, the, the debt accumulated by this guy is the king's response to this man's plea for mercy. The ridiculous kindness and forgiveness of the king, verses 26 and 27. The king looks at this man and he forgives this enormous debt, this debt that is impossible to repay. He looks at him and he says, you and your family no longer have to live under the weight of that debt. Now let's think about that. Somebody has to pay for that debt. Somebody has to inquire, right? It wasn't just wiping the thing clean off the books. The king inquired, he acquired the debt, didn't he? He took it on himself, but what he gave in turn to his servant was mercy. And let's not forget that this parable, like the others, are portraits of the kingdom. Jesus, in fact, starts out in verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared or may look like dot, 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 what's the story that I'm telling you, retelling you. You see, there is a necessity the third point in this parable, there is a necessity when we receive the mercy and goodness of the king in his kingdom to mirror the king's mercy and forgiveness. And what struck me this week in studying the parable was that the second part of the parable where the servant who has just received this incredible gift of mercy and benevolence and generosity has been forgiven, slate has been wiped clean, no more debt upon himself. When this other servant, the servant of the servant, this other servant comes to him who owes him a small fraction. I mean, I, I, how, how minuscule this is. And, and now, again, it is an amount, okay? Like, make no mistake, but it's not 164,000 years to pay it back. It's something that this servant actually could pay back. This servant, this, this forgiven servant, looks at this other servant who owes him money, who's going, please just have patience with me. Please have mercy on me. What does he look at him and say? No way. You owe me that. And he throws him in jail, right? He throws him in prison. Now, let's just divide these, this, this parable into two parts. The first part, right? With this enormous debt, the forgiveness of the king, the kindness of this king, this servant who receives that, Right? We are just like, man, that is such a beautiful picture. Now, part two. Why is part two so egregious? Listen, it's not inconceivable that these two servants, one having a debt to the other, that the other one goes, no, I need to demand my debt. I need you to pay that. I need you to give me what's rightly mine that you racked up the debt. I, I, I need that back. That's not inconceivable. What makes it so egregious in this story? Part one, Right? the backdrop on which this demanding servant goes to this other servant with his minuscule debt and goes, I need it and I want it now, right? Like, you've got to pay me now and I'm throwing you in prison. It's this reaction on the backdrop of the mercy. And what should, have that, what should that first servant have said, the forgiven one? 
He should have looked at this guy who owed him a debt and been like, listen, my debt is paid. Now your debt is actually not with me. It's with the king, right? He has forgiven 164,000 years of debt that I could never repay. So listen, I'm never going to hold this against you. But what does he do? He doesn't understand the enormity of what he's been forgiven. So he holds him to it and puts him in prison. Again, this is, remember, this is a parable. This is a fictitious story. Does he mirror the king's heart? Does he mirror the kingdom ethic that was applied to him? No. You see, the kingdom of God is ruled from a position, James 2.13 tells us, where mercy triumphs over judgment. But in this servant who has received mercy from the king, he is ruling and reigning not with the kingdom ethic of God or the king. He's ruling and reigning from his ethic, for his kingdom, what will personally benefit him, that justice against this other servant must repay You see, this first servant, he wants the benefits of mercy personally, but demands immediate justice for himself from the debts owed to him. Anybody ever live like that? Oh, I want grace and mercy. God, give me grace. Give me your forgiveness. Vertical, but are slow in the horizontal. I'm going to make you earn it. I'm going to make you pay or suffer for a little bit. Is that the ethic of the kingdom of God? Is that the heart of the king to the first servant? You see, we do this in more subtle ways in our life, if we're honest. The way we avenge for wrongs or try to collect on the obligation owed to us. Passive-aggressive comments. Sarcasm. Withholding affection, withholding love. Listen to me, Jesus' teaching brings with them the clear heart that with true forgiveness comes true reform. That when true forgiveness is received by you through Christ, that true reform happens in your life. Let me say it another way. That God's prior action of mercy and forgiveness in our life must be extended to those around us. 1 John 4.19, it says that we love because, you know that one, 1 John 4? You know your Bibles. Come on, it's okay. Because why? He first loved us. A prior action by God then changes our hearts then to love. Love him and love others. You see, this prior action by the king to this servant did not reform this servant's heart toward his other brother. You see, the kingdom of God comes with unlimited grace in a fallen world. What a beautiful reality, amen? But with that, also comes the unlimited demands. The unlimited demands that God makes upon his followers. You have unlimited grace. Go love and live like this. And then verse 35. This is really the punchline in the parable. It's interesting, after 9 a.m. service, I had a, a gentleman, a gentleman who's walked with the Lord for 60 plus years come to me, and he said, he came to one of our elders, and he said, he said, I had, I had never sat in verse 35. I just kept reading all the way through it. But verse 35 is meant, as it would have been meant to stop his audience, is meant to stop us in our tracks. In this parable of the unforgiving servant. Once the master finds out about this, 
This is verse 34. And in his anger, his master delivered him, the unforgiving servant, to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, how long does it take this guy to pay back his debt? Do you remember? 164,000 years. It's impossible. It's forever. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's a serious warning, church. That, that's the word of Jesus. This is meant to deliver a blow. And listen, I think this parable is fairly easy to understand intellectually. Fairly straightforward. What is the lesson here? That Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving that the power to forgive comes from the, the forgiveness we've been extended in Christ Jesus. The enormity of our debt has been released, has been paid for by someone else. And if God has forgiven you, yet you refuse to forgive others, then you will be treated, hear me, by God as unforgiven. Woo! Because you don't understand his forgiveness in the first place is why. So understanding this parable might be the easy part. But the hard work is playing it out. Right? Let's be honest. How? How do I actually embody this? How do I put shoes, if you will, on this text and walk it out in everyday life? Some of you are going, I don't even know how to do this because you're thinking of those nuances, those circumstances, those things, those real things that have happened to you. And listen, I'm indebted to a lot of people who have written on forgiveness and the layers of forgiveness. Guys like Ken Sandy writing on on, uh, uh, peacemaking. Dr. Bruce Hebel, who's a a friend of of the church, and Timothy Keller and counselor David Paulson particularly. And Dr. Brian Maurer, who they have just written on forgiveness, justice, and mercy. And I'd recommend all of those men to you so I glean from them even on this. But I want to spend some time putting handles on this text of forgiveness. Because I think everything, oftentimes in Christian circles, just gets, everything just gets lumped into forgiveness and we don't spend time really talking through it in a way that is practical, in a, a way that is real, that acknowledges real hurt and real pain, real circumstances that are full of nuances. I love counselor David Pollison, who I mentioned. Uh, he, divi- he says there are two forms of forgiveness in the life of a believer. You need to, you need to think about this because I think we just think of it in one form. The first, he says, is attitudinal forgiveness. Attitudinal forgiveness um, means that you are forgiving another person before God. Whether or not that person admits, repents, or even recognizes any wrong. This is your heart before the Lord. This is from uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This vertical aspect of forgiveness deals with our attitudes. Its purpose is to change you, not to deal with the other person. It prepares your heart. It prepares my heart. So you will go to the other person already willing to be merciful. Listen, that is the foundation. I believe this parable is setting in our hearts as believers that we must be a people of radical and supernatural forgiveness, that we are a a people with open hands to that that we are no longer holding the grudge or the wound or building up bitterness in our lives, that we're no longer on the defensive. So there's this attitudinal forgiveness. 
And then there's this transacted. The second form is transacted forgiveness, as he calls it. And this is from Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Listen to how Jesus describes this type of forgiveness. If your brother sins, bring it up with him directly. Do you hear that? Directly. Not gossip, not in a roundabout way, not like, I hope this gets back to him, but directly with him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times, there it is again, seven, in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Notice that here, Jesus envisions a conversation with the other person. He does this in Matthew 18 as well. You bring it up, not in an indicting way, but constructively. The wound, the hurt, the sin, the offense. And the other person repents, asks to be forgiven. There is this interpersonal interaction that is able to be both candid, meaning honest, and full of mercy. What a rare combination, right? But what a gift we have as believers for this to actually be true and real in our relationships. And because there has been attitudinal forgiveness, this process has already begun and already happened in our hearts. I want to stop here, though. And I want to maybe correct some thinking um, in the negative sense. I want to remind us what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is, is not a feeling. Nearly every writer, right? You, you, read, you read Keller, you read Pallison, you read Mayer, you read any of these guys. At the heart of this, they will all say the same thing, that forgiveness is a decision. It is an act of will, an act of your will, a decision to release the debt. That first, that attitudinal going, Lord, you have to help me. Lord, I give this wound, this offense to you. Heal my heart. And let me tell you that the Lord is faithful to do that as you come before him. Now, it may take time, and that's where we really struggle, right, with patience. But forgiveness is not a feeling. Well, I'll get to it when I feel like it. Forgiveness is not forgetting, church. It's not just, just going, well, I, I, I must be dealing with unforgiveness because I can't, I can't forget that offense. I, I can't forget the, how, how that happened or the, how that person wounded me. I, I must be dealing with unforgiveness because I cannot forget it. Listen, I think, and I think this thinking comes from um, God where he says that when he uh, forgives us, he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west, right? And he remembers our sins no more. But you have to understand you're not God. And so for us, remembering and forgetting are both passive experiences, for God, that is an active choice that he makes to choose, I am not remembering their sin any longer. I am choosing to remember, I am choosing not to hold their sin against them any longer. And then thirdly, that forgiveness is not excusing sin. This is not a text, this is not a teaching where it's just like, yeah, you just become a doormat and let everybody walk on you and, and cause offense and, and create wounds in you and wreak havoc in your life. That is not what this is about. This is about how to biblically, and in a, in a way that honors King Jesus and the kingdom of God, how we deal with inevitable wounds and hurt that come into our lives. This is not excusing sin in any form or any fashion. I love Ken Sandy in his book on peacemaking. He says that forgiveness, this has been really helpful in my life. Wounds that in my life I've carried for 20 plus years. He says that forgiveness makes four promises. Four promises. 
That when you understand biblical forgiveness, when you understand the heart of Jesus, here are the four promises they make. The first is this, I will not dwell on this incident. That is very different than forgetting. But I will not dwell, I will not let this fester. The scripture that comes to mind is take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. I'm not going to dwell on this incident. Interpersonal. Intrapersonal is the second promise, right? I won't bring this incident up again and use it against you. Third, I will not talk to others about this incident. Again, forgiveness makes four promises. I will not dwell on this. I will not bring this incident up again and use it against you, weaponize it against you. Third, I will not talk to others about this incident, right? Oh yeah, we're good. Yeah, I I forgive you. But let me tell you what she did to me. Oh, uh, Praxis group, I need prayer because this person wounded me in this way and yeah, we reconciled, but let me tell you how they wounded me. Maybe some toxic transparency going on. Some unforgiveness cloaked in forgiveness. And then fourth, the fourth promise, which is reconciliation, by the way. It says, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. That through Christ's love, through his forgiveness toward us, through repentance and mercy, we've reconciled. Now, does that now mean we are best friends, arm to arm? Probably not but you're reconciled. You've made these promises. And I can hear the grumbling in the room. I can hear your, yeah, but, questions. Yeah, but what about this? Kyle, I've got this issue. How do we deal with unforgiveness that is prevalent? In our own hearts, our own inclination of our flesh. I think this is where also Ken Sandy's helpful. He tells us the first thing we must do is we must look for and wait for repentance. This is Luke 17. If you go to a brother and he repents or she repents, forgive him. But this is where it requires, again, the P word, patience. Patience of looking and listening, is this brother, is this sister, is this person repentant? Or how about the second thing of dealing with unforgiveness? Don't make the other person earn it and don't ask for a guarantee. You've got to earn my forgiveness. Which servant is that? Right? That's the one dealing with the servant, the one who's been forgiven the enormous debt, going to the other servant and going, listen, you owe me. Or how about making a guarantee, like, I'll forgive you as long as you promise to never do that again. Is that true biblical forgiveness? I don't think so. And third, I want to I state this one um, more carefully. Consider if you bear any responsibility in the issue. Hear me. In a room this size with this many people, Stories that I even know in this room. There are cases where absolutely you do not bear any responsibility. Atrocities done to you. Wounding done to you. Unfathomable. And so don't hear me say in every situation there is always two parties to bear responsibility. I'm not saying. 
Forgiveness does not call you to go and subject yourself to abuse. Ever. Four. Maybe we should recognize more than we do that God is working for good. That his word is true when it says that God uses how many things? All things. He works all things together for good those to those who love him. You see, that's, when we understand that, we can see these circumstances in our life, we can see these relationships, we can see these, these moments, and we can see how God might be using it for our good and for his glory in some way. That forgiveness is an opportunity to display God's heart. That we remember what I think the, the first servant forgot. We, we, we remember God's enormous forgiveness toward us. Because I wouldn't always say this needs to be a good exercise all the time, but maybe you need to sit down and think about all the things the Lord has forgiven you from. The things he has rescued you from, saved you from, right? The enormity of your debt paid for in Christ Jesus. Like how do we posture ourselves and rid this heart of unforgiveness and bitterness? I think finally, we have to understand that it is impossible in our own strength. That if you are trying to muster up, even this morning, the power to forgive, you will fail. That we must be a people, if we are going to have hearts that forgive, people who draw on God's strength, on his mercy, on his grace, on his forgiveness first. You say, where, where do we draw on God's strength? I think two primary places. The word of God and the church. We need others, other brothers and sisters in Christ spurring us along, reminding us of God's heart and his love and his mercy. You see what Jesus describes here and in other places, we can't do this. It is an impossibly high standard. But yet we see the grace of God intervene and that the grace of God is not just for salvation, it is that primarily to justify us. But the grace of God is also God's power for you and I to overcome sin, even the sin of unforgiveness. Corey Tinboom, most of you know that name. In her book, In the Hiding Place, um, if you know Corey's story, family concentration camp in Nazi Germany family murdered. She then would go and teach. After that time, she would then go teach in churches and other believers the message of forgiveness. In her book, The Hiding Place, um, I want to read an excerpt from that because I think it highlights this heart. She says this, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS, the Nazi man who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing as we stood naked. Betsy's pain-blanched face, Betsy, her sister. He came up to me as the church was emptying and beaming and bowing. He said to her, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. He said to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. 
and I, who preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Attitudinal forgiveness. I tried to smile, she said. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And listen to this, and I'll put this last section of this up. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his, on Christ's. When he tells us to love our enemy, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Our God never asks of his followers something that he hasn't infinitely and eternally demonstrated more. Forgiveness. And so we're about to draw near to these tables to receive the elements of communion this morning. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering what? His death the payment for that enormous debt, the way in which you and I are saved and reconciled back to God, the very motivation for the forgiveness we have one to another is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The ultimate payment for your sin is in the death of Christ. The payment for the sin against you, guess where it's found? In the death of Jesus Christ. And so hosts, ushers, I want you to prepare. And so here's what I want us to do as, as the rows are dismissed. This is a time for us to reflect and respond before the Lord. Before we take these elements, some of you need to repent of unforgiveness. The Holy Spirit, no doubt, is convicting and moving in your heart, and you need to bring that to him and say, Lord, as Corey did, Lord, help me in my unforgiveness. Help me to forgive. Because the debt's been paid. The ability to be forgiven is found in Jesus Christ. And for some of you, some of you need to ask the Lord, Lord, do I actually know you? Have I received your forgiveness? The grace and mercy from your son applied to me. Is that real in my life or does my life demonstrate something other? Listen, I'm, I'm just charismatic enough to believe that when there are distractions, I believe the Lord wants to do something unique. God, give us hearts to pay attention to his voice this morning. What he wants to do. Let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, lead this moment by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
God, continue to take my heart into those impossible places of forgiveness where if I lean on my own strength, I will fail. Give us the strength. Give us the grace and mercy to do what only we can do when we find ourselves surrendered to you. And God, I pray even as we hold these elements, may we not, may we not dismiss what they mean by holding sins against other people and holding unforgiveness against other people. Show us what it means to walk this out faithfully for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Host, lead us.